Welcome back to another episode of the TD Pod. We said that we were going to do this weekly, but life happens and we're back two weeks late, but that's okay. Or I guess just one week late. One week late. Uh, Jeff, I have a very important question for you as we start off here. How old were you when you discovered that the former president of the Confederate States of America was named Jefferson Davis? And how mad at your parents did you get when you realized this? So, um, I think I was probably five years old the first time that someone asked, someone called me Jefferson. And I remember asking my parents um, why people were calling me Jefferson. And I didn't, you know, five's like too young to really understand understand what that what that is i was just aware vaguely of, of that but as i got older i found more about it i'm actually named after my uncle whose name's jeffrey as well i was almost a scott which i would much rather be a jeffrey than a scott no offense to the scots out there i just jeffrey works better for me than scott does um but it is kind of funny i got that all the time growing up uh, particularly for my high school or for my seventh grade texas history teacher um, used to call me jefferson davis a lot growing up in the small town in east texas so yeah, I'm used to guys. I think everyone, no matter what you name something, uh, name someone is there's going to be a way to make fun of them and dig into them somehow. So that that just happened to be your lot. Yeah, my, my, I got to give a shout out. He's not listening to this podcast, but my brother-in-law has a supernatural ability to take any anyone's first name and turn it into like something appropriate. And it's really kind of magical the way that he can do it. Um, and he took the word Emma one time and came up with Emerson Big and, you know, went with that like in front of other people. And he's just, he's really good at it. So anytime I, I, I feel a little off about that, I just think of how he would come up with like a way to like give somebody's name and come up with that. So yeah, nice. there's a new way. Well, in our first episode, we talked... <laughs> Really, the plan was to talk about offensive run game, but I bet we spent 90% of the time, if not more, talking about offensive line. And so for this episode, we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the running backs and tight ends, but we're not going to limit ourselves just to run game here. We're going to talk about how they operate in the pass game as well. Um, but before we get started on that, you know, we really kind of had to... Uh, you know, abbreviate the end of that podcast because, of course, we ended up talking for longer than we wanted to and really had a hard end there to get out of there. And at the end, we wanted to talk about kind of best average and, you know, um, worst case scenarios for the offensive line. And you were basically kind of couching your statements into like whether the offensive line is 10 to 20 percent better or like 30 to 40 percent better or something like that. I was curious if you had maybe a more tangible way to kind of describe what you're looking at. Like, what exactly would it mean to you if the offensive line was 10% better versus 30% better? Well, there's a lot of different ways that that can be phrased. I think an easy way, if you're listening right now, would be to think of it in terms of how comfortable do the offensive linemen feel doing uh, or executing what I'll refer to as um, combo blocks, which is a lot of times in zone, you walk up on a guy, but you're also, you're helping out the guy to the left or the right to you. You know, if you're trying to get a guy, you're trying to bump a guy. So if you're the, if you're the center, we'll use this a little bit more quickly. If you're the center and you've got somebody lined up between you and the guy to your left, the left guard in, in, in that spot, um, oftentimes you're not going like, to walk all the way into him, but you might try to like, 
him with your hip or try to stop his momentum and just get just enough of a piece of him so that the guard can slide over and engage with that defensive tackle. Um, Baylor's Baylor's offensive lineman did a lot of running the spots last year, which is they knew they needed to do it and they kind of would run in the spot, but it wasn't second nature to them in the way that the body would move. You know, zone blocking is very like it's almost intuitive in the way that you want to move your body or like move to a guy's hip versus upper body because you're much more likely to move him if you hit his hip than you hit his upper chest. Um, there's a lot of that that just becomes second nature. It's you're not just running around, you're moving with purpose and you're not thinking about it. You can't really think, how am I going to throw my body into this other 300 pound behemoth to block him correctly? You just kind of got to do it. And getting an increased level of body intelligence and just getting a lot of reps and being more comfortable moving your body that way, that's that's the big thing. So how 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 well do uh, offensive linemen, when they don't have the primary block, but they have to assist before getting to their other block, that's a really good metric to look at. If they do a little bit better, maybe that's 10%. If they do a lot better, you know, 30 yeah. to 40. I think uh... – an analogy I was thinking of there is like, you know, like when big men um, and you can tell like, oh, they hit a gr- growth spurt and they became six foot 10 in basketball. And so they just started playing basketball in high school or maybe, you know, late high school and they're learning how to defend the post and they kind of like do everything robotically. And uh, you can tell like there's like a look on their face of like, how is this guy able to score on me? Like I did everything the coaches told me to do. You know, I squared up my hips. I put my arm into his back and I had my hand straight up in the air. Uh, but you can tell the way they're moving. It's just, isn't natural. They're still thinking too much. They're still trying to like execute the basics of what they learned. And then you see like the, you know, the most excellent post defenders in basketball, like nothing looks robotic, right? It's like very fluid. They, they kind of have a sense of what the offensive player is going to do. I think that's kind of an analogy for, you know, when you're playing offensive line, like there's all these different techniques that, that you've been taught to how to execute, but like you were saying, Jeff, it, it's it's not a matter of running to the spot or like putting your hands exactly where um, you're taught to put them on the defender by your coach. It's it's it all has to kind of become second nature, and I think that's a that's a good point to to really focus on the combo blocks there because, you know, I think when you see a lot of problems with offensive linemen, especially when you see a big time negative play, a lot of times what you're seeing is like you know the center thought that he could go ahead and move up to the second level but in reality he needed to provide some help to one of his guards with a guy right next to him um and there's just it's not necessarily a miscommunication but it's just like a miss sense between those two guys um and that is i think really where tangible like offensive line experience and playing next to guys a lot matters and i know like you as as being such an NFL guy too, I know it's a big deal in the NFL when you can get paired guys to work together for a long time because that kind of sense that they can play with together means a lot, which is obviously more difficult in college when usually you're only playing next to the same guy for one, two, maybe three years. But I think with most of that, you know, four out of five starters coming back, you can hope to see them executing those those blocks where both guys need to be on the same page. And it's not even necessarily an explicit same page. It's just an intuitive same page. That's a that's a great area to watch this next year. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that's it as far as offensive line goes. This episode, like I said, we're going to focus more on tight ends, running backs. Um, I wanted to start with the tight ends uh, because I feel like I have a better grip on them, I guess, than the running backs. And and I honestly, I'm just really excited about the tight ends this year. Um, you know, I wrote this these this three part series for season three six five about the two tight ends. Um, but obviously Baylor has more than two tight ends on the roster, but they have two upperclassmen tight ends that are really good. 
And that was kind of my first question I wanted to propose to you, Jeff, is, you know, I get this sense that Baylor has two upperclassmen tight ends who are really good all-around guys. Um, I think Sims is a little bit ahead of Dabney in kind of every respect at this point in their careers. But both of them, I think you could describe at worst as like average at everything. And then they're both probably above average to great at a few different things, which actually makes a great, great college player. How rare in your experience as a you know a long longer college football fan than me is it for you to see a college team you know be able to kind of build their identity a, around two tight ends like this because I just I can't think of too many teams that I'm familiar with at least in the Big Twelve over the past decade or so that um, have been able to say that I can't think of anyone now and that's honest that's honest good statement um, Oklahoma State tried this about 10 years ago. I, I can't remember exactly. It's like 2013, 2014. Um, Gundy tried to go down the route of um, basically going after big tight ends. That, that was clearly the market inefficiency uh, was, to try to get, was to try to get the tight ends in. And that is, it's a very difficult position to recruit to because you're really, you're not, you know, with a skill position player, you're kind of recruiting to what they can be in 12 to 24 months. And then at that point, it's a polish. That's not the case with tight end. Tight end is you're really recruiting to what they could be in three to four years. And then you're polishing that. You've got a whole other year or two. Because to play tight end correctly, you have to be able to do what we'll call an inline wide which means that you need to be able to play tight end correctly to do it well. You need to be able to put your hand on the ground right next to the tackle. And that we'll call that an inline white. You are in line with the offensive line and you are you the wide receiver. Um, that's really, really difficult to do because you need to be able to block a defensive end that's probably going to weigh at the very least 20 pounds more than you, depending on the scheme could be 40 to 45 pounds more than you. And then you also need to be able to outrun a linebacker and be able to get, uh, get into the hole in his own most of the time um, on a call pass play. Those are two pretty different skill sets and it's tough to be able to do that um, for a college player. You just, there's so much strength that's involved with being able to block efficiently at that spot. So I can't recall, I can, I really can't recall another offense that featured tight end primarily that wasn't like an option or like a full backbone offense where you aren't, you know, you're, you're really kind of involving these guys heavily in the passing, but the offense is geared around that, you know, even tight end is really a newer position because historically, most of the time you would have kind of wingbacks or you might have a slot back. Um, and so the, I, the the modern tight end is really more thinking around taking a fullback and putting them on the line because they're more effective in passing game. Um, to have a genuine twelve personnel set like Baylor's probably going based out of on standard downs this year, I I can't really think or recall at least in the Big Twelve. I'm sure there's been an SEC team that's done it in the last twenty, but I don't care about the SEC, so I don't really watch right. them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, and that's not a negative. I just I only have so many hours in the day. That's not trying to be like anti-SEC bias. I'm, just, I'm not going to watch South Carolina and Florida. I just don't have that time. Um, but uh, it's particularly for the Big 12. No, there's no there's no parallel to this. Certainly in the last, um, I'd say, 25 years. I, I can't think of anything since about 1999. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Ben Sims is a great example of what you were talking about with that kind of delayed 
um, development path because he's going into year, I think this is year five for him, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, he is noticeably a much, much better player this year than he was like two years ago. And I think it, it, and, you know, it's really been kind of a, a, a market year by year, adding a skill here, adding a skill there to become what he's become now. You don't really recruit like all around tight ends out of high school. You recruit guys who can become that, but there's not really any tight end that can come in as a true freshman or even as a redshirt freshman and be a guy who can handle 290 pound defensive ends in line also be able to block edge defenders. You know, I, I think about it, I was watching um, Baylor's defense against BYU earlier today, and I was watching one of their tight ends. Um, on one down, he was, you know, he was crashing down to help against the defensive end, which is Cole Maxwell, who's 295 pounds. And then the next down, they asked him to kind of out in space block Jalen Petrie. <laughs> I was just like, he totally whiffed. Jalen just just destroyed him. Uh, and I was, you know, I, I feel like in the film room, he would probably just like kind of put his palms up in the air. And it's like, well, I don't know what you want, coach. Like, I can do one or the other. It's really hard. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really impressive about both Sims and Dabney is that they've already shown last year that their ability to to kind of handle that contradiction of being able to be powerful enough to not get overpowered against the big boys inside but also be valuable enough to reliably block linebackers and safeties out in space. That's just a rare combination. Yes. The other thing I would point out on this, it just kind of came to what you were talking, was tight end is also a very difficult position to coach. Um, And particularly at the college level, that's definitely a position that in the past um, you might put someone that's a better recruiter and this is not a like, this is just a factual statement, but someone that is maybe a much better recruiter, more of kind of a team coach um, that, is, that is well known on the team, like that's more likely to be the guy that running back are really the two positions that a lot of times you will see, um, you'll see kind of more recruiters put in um, because our young coaches that, that you, you want to see, you want to see this coach, see what they can become, but you don't really want to put them. Stick him at tight end. Um, so it Baylor's very that's what Baylor did with that's what Baylor did with Sean Bell, which again, no disrespect to him, but that was his first position coaching job, if I'm not mistaken. So it was kind of like, let's see what you got here, put him at tight end. And so it's a way, you know, it's a way to get a, a really good recruiter on the field. Um, you know, a lot of times in practice, in practice reps, they'll spend time with their wide receivers or they'll spend time with um, offensive linemen. You know, that's not every day, but they do that a lot. So having a high quality tight end coach is also a bit of a rarity unless you're at a really, really big, big, big program. So, yeah. And I know obviously Jeff Grimes has been an offensive line coach for the primary aspect of his career, but in kind of designing run games, he's always kind of had tight ends at the forefront of his mind. So I, I have to imagine he knows how to coach that position pretty well. He does. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just, I, I just lost my train of thought there. I, was, I, I had another point to say, but oh well, moving on. Um, what do you... Okay, I, 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 have this, I have this question for you here. So if, if you were to, on a 1 to 10 scale, say that um, Mark Andrews, who is Oklahoma's tight end, I don't know how long ago that was, five, six, seven years ago, something like that, uh, who's now a top, you know, three, four, five tight end in the NFL. He was just dominant at Oklahoma. So I put him at the kind of the top of the scale for basically like as good as it gets as a college tight end. And then like put like Charlie Kolar, who's been the Iowa State tight end for the past few years. He's been a really kind of basically dominant player. And then kind of like eight to nine scale. 
And at the bottom end, you have one uh, a rating of one, which is like your typical, like, I don't even know who this guy's name is. He catches six balls a year. Um, you know, his position coach barely knows who he is type tight end. So if that's a one, you know, where would you put Ben Sims this year? Um, because I've, I've just kind of been getting incrementally higher and higher and higher on him over the off season. Does he have the potential to reach that like Charlie Kolar level to you? Or do you think it's safer to slot him a little bit lower? I think he does, you know, the Sims game last year, he he was much better blocker last year. There were, there were times when I would watch him on tape and he didn't always seem as comfortable in space, particularly on the move when he was walking. Um, there was, he's a good route runner. I don't think that he necessarily was great with the ball in his hands, but you don't necessarily expect tight end to be able to do that either. That's not really, I mean, Jason Witten made a living barely being able to run just by running out and turning around at 12 yards. So, you know, he, he was terrible with the ball in his hands for the last eight years of his career. Um, but I, I think for Sims, it really him being able to block second and third level players really well, because you don't have to bury those guys. You're significantly bigger than they are. You've got to be able to get up on them and engage and don't let them go. And being able to do that in space is actually difficult because if they get to the side of you, oftentimes it's really easy for that to turn into a hold. And so it takes a lot of practice to be able to, you know, figure out how to turn your body and to be able to seal guys off. If he can take that next step, I think he can get there. I really do. Um, he He's just, he's very well-rounded. That's kind of the thing that really sticks out to me about Sims game. A, everything he does, he does well. I don't know that he's necessarily elite at anything, but particularly at the tight end level, if he can if he can block better in space, he becomes a guy that quite literally does everything really well. And those guys are invaluable. Right. Yeah, I, I remember what I was going to say um, just a few minutes ago to your point about um, how tight ends often have to split their practice time between like basically working with the offensive line versus working on their receiving abilities. And I think that is a helpful explanation for why these guys take longer to develop. I mean, literally in the college game, when practice time is so limited, you're only getting a few practices per week during the season. Um, you know, there's only so much time. You know, you basically have to look at it. They're learning two different positions, essentially. They're learning how to become inline blockers. They're learning how to block in space. And then they also have to learn how to be route runners and, and do everything that's involved in the passing game. So I think that's a, a helpful way to think of like, well, why does it take these guys longer to learn everything? Well, it's just like, they literally have more to learn. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think your point about Ben Sims blocking in space is very important. Um, yeah, early in last year, Baylor really struggled. And this is how I want to tie it kind of into the run game a little bit. Uh, Baylor really kind of struggled in their jet sweep game. They struggled in some of their backside run game and really anything they try to do on the edges. And it's because the wide receivers and tight ends both either had guys who weren't giving max effort or more often than not, especially with the case of, of Ben Sims, it was just clear that there was still a lot of thinking going on. You know, there's a lot of rules. There's, you know, it's kind of like we were talking about with the guards last week. There's a lot of potential for who you could be blocking after the snap. They're told, you know, a tackle might be told I'm blocking, you know, this defensive end that's lined up right over me, but a tight end, when he gets pulling out in front on an arc block in front of a sweep, his rule is going to be more like, you know, you block the second defender that reaches you from this space, essentially, right? So, it, you know, he's not, it's not, it's not as easy to, to kind of go to the spot and then block somebody. They're, they're having to make sure that they don't double up on somebody else and then leave somebody else free. So I think the reps there really matter. And, you know, I think it matters a lot for Baylor's run game this year because 
if you're going to be a 12 personnel team, um, obviously you can still do a lot with Sims and Dabney in the pass game, but it means that you need to be able to get dynamic big chunks in the run game out on the edges. Otherwise, you know, what is the point? You have to be explosive in college football. You can't rely on, on 10, 11, 12, 13 play drives every time. So I think if Baylor is going if to, it, if it's going to work for them to play with these two tight ends on the field all the time, they need to be good enough blockers in space to where they can hit big chunk plays out on the edge in the run game and in the screen game. So that, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting tag on right there. So I'll ask you this question, like, what do you think we didn't see all that much, if any, from a screen game last year? Can you tell me what you're looking for um, from, a, from a growth in the screen game perspective? I'm throwing that out of nowhere at you, but I'm, I'm kind of curious. You mentioned that I've been thinking about that for a while. I don't really have an answer for it, but I, I'm curious, what do you think? Like, what is, what is this good screen game component look like? added on to this offense this year because we didn't really see much of it last year yeah and, and i think that's why you didn't really see it last year is just like why would we call a screenplay that might go for zero yards we we can just hand the ball to abram and he'll probably get us four you know um but i think it, it, when you watch grimes at byu you see a ton of screen game uh you see it you know see you see interior running back screens and you see a lot of screens on the edge to wide receivers and it's because He's got veteran offensive linemen that he trusts to make blocks in space. He's got tough wide receivers who are, he knows are going to block for one another. And the final piece there is all these tight ends and H-backs, which he knows are going to dominate out, out on the edges. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a big part of what we're going to see this year because, you know, with the games that Baylor's fixing to play out of 12 personnel with kind of where defenses try and allocate their numbers, you know, we talked about constraint plays last year. Screens, as you know, as we mentioned with the Browse offense, they're kind of the ultimate constraint play. Like, if you literally do not have enough numbers lined up to the side of the field, we'll just throw the ball out there instantly and know that our guys are going to be able to block three on three. And, you know, we'll be able to get at least seven yards. And they're the ultimate kind of like, it. once you get good at them, um, they're safe with a lot of potential for explosiveness because they often just become, you know, make one guy miss and you can make a huge play. And, you know, I think a lot of Baylor's wide receivers should be really good at screens this year, particularly guys like Monterey Baldwin, potentially Seth Jones, Hal Presley has shown some potential there. So I just think it works great as a safety valve for we've got the run game going, we've got other things going. We don't always have to rely on hitting deep shots downfield to make a big play in the passing game. We can just, you know, dump the ball out there. Um, And if you've got guys who can block in space, then why not call plays where you can block in space? So another question that I'm going to ask you then, what is it you're looking for in a wide receiver that makes you think that they'll be good in the screen game? Because I, I have an answer for that from a running back, but I haven't really thought about it from a wide receiver perspective. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's A, it's decisiveness. Like, you need a guy who's just going to get upfield, like, as soon as possible. I actually notice that a lot when watching BYU tape, because BYU obviously usually doesn't have the world's most athletic wide receivers, but they were still still calling a ton of screens. And it's because they basically, it's like the adage you hear the football announcers say all the time, right? Like a screen essentially just work, operates as a running play. Um, and they basically just taught these guys, like, you don't necessarily try and need to hit the home run, but if you just hit this gap and then run this guy over, like, you're going to get six or seven yards. Um, so I think decisiveness is the big point because these are the type of plays that when you're calling them, you're calling them because the defense hasn't put enough numbers over there. And so it's ideal and optimal that you basically start getting upfield as soon as possible before the defense can rally to the ball. And I think the other thing you look for is guys that have kind of a it factor and a natural feel 
for the game of football. And I know that's not like the most specific answer, but I think anybody who's ever been good in screen game is somebody to where it, it doesn't look like the, they're able to think while the ball is still in the air, right? Because when you have the guys who have to think about, like their hands aren't very good, so they have to concentrate on making the catch and then they turn around and then they have to get the feel for the play. I think I, I look for guys where it seems like before the ball is snapped, they can, they see themselves like where I'm going to go how I'm going to make the cut, you know, where this guy's going to come from, and then I'm going to make my, like, it all just feels very seamless and natural to them. And all that kind of shows itself on film as like a guy who's basically not hesitant and is kind of seamlessly moving from the snap to where he get, wants to go. I, I don't know if that's the most specific answer or if it's easily discernible, but I, I feel like it's something you can, you kind of, you kind of get it when you see it. Yeah. I love that explanation. I'm, I, I, I should, my dad answered the text. I text him right now, but you use that line right there. Uh, you know it when you see it. That just that makes me think of a. Sorry, this is definitely an unimportant tangent, but there was a uh, guy in the '60s or the '70s that was um, being sued uh, for attempted alleged uh, copyright infringement around the song, and they asked him on the stand right. to define what the role was, and he says, "I can't tell you what it is, but I know it when I hear it." And I, I actually think that's a pretty valid description of what you're looking for with a guy with his ball with ball in his hands like you know it when you see it you know how the way he looks the way he holds his body it's wide receivers that move well with the ball in their hands move differently than they do without ball in their hands and it's just it's a big difference yep and i i you know when i think about guys who can do that this year i think monterey baldwin instantly comes to mind because he's just somebody that seems to have a feel for where people are around him um, but it'll be interesting to see if anybody else on the offense table will take that step. So we've talked a lot about, uh, we, we, we talked a good amount about Ben Sims, but of course we've been talking about two, two tight ends, two tight ends. Let's talk about Drake Dabney a little bit. He is a couple years younger than Ben Sims, actually. So Ben is going into his fifth year. Drake is only going into his third year. So he is an upperclassman, but he's a true upperclassman. Uh, no redshirt year. You know, what do you see from Drake you know, why are we considering him to be such a good player along somebody, alongside somebody who's got a couple years experience on him? And what makes him different than, you know, your typical other third year college tight end that any other college might think that they have and can boast about? Uh, well, the first one would be reps, honestly. So if you think about, if you think, go back to the Art Riles offense, when they pulled a tight end in the game, it was basically an offensive tackle. It was a third, it was a third offensive tackle. And they only ever pulled one of those guys in during the game. And if they had, if they ran two offensive, if they had a play where they needed two tight ends, whether it was goal line or they you know, wanted to try something different, they would literally just slap a uh, tackle eligible on the field. I mean, they would not. They had basically one tight end that they would that they would use, um, and everyone else was just tackle. And so it's, it is rare to see the other plus side of two tight end sets, which is what we saw so much. We did see a good amount of it last year was those guys get on the field reps and it really matters. I mean, it just, it's not like, you know, when you're a wide receiver, you have different sub packages and you're in on certain pass plays because you can run specific route better or, you know, whatever. Like that happens a lot during the game and, and uh, fans don't always notice it, but those guys get lots of reps, even if they're not catching the ball in the game. Um, if you're running like the offense Baylor ran in 2020 or even the offense that Baylor ran in 2018 and 19, you don't get as many of those reps because you know, there's only one guy on the field and you're going to put your best player on the field for the most part. So having two tight ends last year gave him 
a significant amount number more, uh, more reps than he should have at his age. I think that's probably the single biggest component to it is you can't you can't replicate in-game reps. Um, so outside of that, though, he has a he's tall. You know, he's he's tall. He's big. He's strong. You know, drinks a lot of beer. You know, all yeah. the other that we always <laughs> use. Guys. But he's he's also he looks and moves like an actual tight end. I think he's yeah his program height is six five. I think he's probably like six four ish is probably more accurate. Um, but he does look every bit of two forty five two fifty. I mean he's he's about the correct height for a guy that you would want to play be, do playing an F and a difference between an F and an inline Y. An F is basically a big body that's a tight end, but he's always in a two point in line like a wide receiver. Um, you, he has the ability to, he's big enough now that he can really be effective with his hand in the dirt. And there were plays last year where you could see the receiving talent, but a problem that they had last year was when he would go onto the line, it was, it was a very, it was a giveaway that this was not going to be a run play to his side. I mean, they just, they just did not, um, they just didn't call him because there was a, there was a rather I can't remember the game last year. I, I want to say it was BYU, but it might have been an earlier game where they called a run play where he had a key block. And, and I mean, God bless him. He didn't so much whiff as he just got real beaten really badly. And it was they had like a one or two yard loss. And I remember after the fact finding out that apparently that being surprised that that play was called into the side, and it turned out that he was. He had the wrong tight end called on that play. Um, that that was a problem for them last year, which was he, he was very much a play on a player. And I, the hope for him this year is that he his strength can get up and he can become well rounded enough to where it's not an automatic tip off. Um, the guy that I would the, the, the ultimate example of this at the pro level is Reggie Bush. So Reggie Bush, for those of us, for those of you that are over the age of twenty five, the guy that's on Fox College Sports. Um, even when he was at USC, he really was played not player. He ran trap screen draw. That's what he ran. And if it wasn't trap screen or draw, they didn't really call it to him all that often, unless they were playing, you know, Oregon State. They just wanted to run student body right or just let him get out of space. <laughs> but particularly at the NFL level, he couldn't play on a down to down basis because he could only really do three plays: trap screen or draw. And that was that Dabney had a little bit of that last year, which was unless they lined both those guys up on the same side, um, which they did do a significant amount, but unbalanced, you give away a lot compared to a balanced formation. When you're balanced, they weren't really balanced last year. And this year, they should have the ability to do that. I, I do think it's his issues in blocking. We talked, you know, about 20 minutes ago about how it's it's a grown men's position. Like you need those extra years on the platform to get your strength up. It's very reasonable to assume that he'll be a lot better at blocking having having had another full year on the platform to get his strength up. Like that 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 is very reasonable in the same way you would assume an offensive lineman's going to get a lot stronger. So I, I'm he's actually the guy I'm most excited about because I feel like Sims is a we know who Sims is. He's a really good player that if he can get a little bit better could become great. I'm very interested to see if Dabney can take that next step. Like that's that's the guy I'm most interested in on uh, really from a skill position standpoint, offense uh, on the offense at all. Is can he take that next step to where it's it, because if he can, then it's like there's a lot of goodness that happens. If right. you have two matchup tight ends that are matchup nighters, 
that's that's really bad for the rest of the teams that they will play because there are there are very very few teams, and I by very few I can think of really Iowa State and brought not Texas Iowa State and maybe Oklahoma have the linebackers to be able to to, to handle two of those guys at the same time. Yeah. That's really about it. And if yeah. those guys are operating at peak, at peak, you know, efficiency, they're going to dominate. Yeah. I, you know, one thing that was fun last year is because it was the first year under Grimes, we saw a lot of these guys grow a lot throughout the year. And Dabney's one of those guys who grew a lot. Um, I think in the Ole Miss game, he was one of Baylor's best players in that game. And it was because on one snap, he was – he was handling Sam Williams, who was um, the defensive end that got drafted in the second round by the Cowboys. You know, big, powerful, athletic dude. Khalil Key said he was the toughest defensive lineman he played against all year. And Drake Dabney handled him solo 1v1 on a couple of times. Yeah. And then on yeah. the next snap, Dabney would be, um, you know, dominating Ole Miss's uh, number 44 linebacker, who had a great game. Uh, but yeah. Dabney was handling him out in space. And now that you say that, Jeff, I actually realized that. Baylor was actually able to play a lot more of that balanced um, two tight end set in the in the Ole Miss game, yeah. um, and I think that's great because, like you said, it, it it makes it makes it a lot tougher for defenses to find tells based on what you're going to do. But finally, about the tight ends here, what I, what I want to get into is, and it relates to what you just said about how you're so excited, you know, about him for what he can potentially do in the offense. You know, it has to be worth it to play twelve personnel. There's trade offs, right? Um, you know, it brings you more stability in the run game. It gives you more flexibility in in as far as what you can call run wise. But you know, in theory, you're you're it, it's a trade off in the sense of you're you're lessening the amount of speed you have on the field, so you're not preventing presenting as much of a vertical threat. It's more of a horizontal threat. So, kind of, what is the central thing that you're looking at this year for whether it's worth it for Baylor to really base out of twelve personnel versus making sure that they can get another third speedy wide receiver on the field? Do you, do you think it'll be more game-dependent and matchup-dependent, or do you feel like it's going to be like, okay, pretty much every game we're going to play out of 12 personnel, mix in some 11? So you run, you run 12 personnel for two reasons. The first one is you can't block the edge guys, and that's a, legit, that's a very legit reason. I mean, like if you can't block an edge guy, it's really dumb to just let your offensive tackle get roasted to the game. Like, give that man some help. Um Depending on what happens, you know, health-wise, that we're hoping that that's not really an issue for Baylor this year. You know, yeah, I think it was more specifically on the right tackle side. We didn't know what was going to happen on right tackle between uh, Byers and Keith uh, last year. Um, this year, you know, we feel a little bit more confident in that. I will say it's Viz matchup dependent in terms of this. In order to run, and I'm, I'm going to use the clarifying term here, a balanced formation means that you have an equal number of people to the left or to the right of the quarterback. That's all that means. Um, the That you don't have a specific side that has a larger surface than the other. And what we mean by surface is, if you if you picture, if you're looking down on, on, on the offensive line at center, the surface is the number of players that either are to the right or to the left of center. So if you only have... If you have a tight end lined up to the right of the right tackle, that's a three-man surface. The right guard, right tackle, and tight end. And then on the opposite side, you might have a two-man surface. Um, it's only worth it if you have the ability to deploy either tight end consistently into the field for a pass threat. Because if you can't do that, it becomes... It does not that you shouldn't do it all, but 
what makes that what makes that formation extremely powerful is that if you can deploy both of your tight ends at any point in time, then really the from a defensive perspective, they have to treat it like you are you're kind of in ten, which is you have to be able to cover up both of those players. And and unless you have two studs that can handle those guys in a man coverage situation and there's no one in the Big Twelve that has two people to handle those guys man to man one on one. There's nobody that does. Um if you don't have that, then you're left calling zone, and you simply like you simplify dramatically what you're going to see from an offensive line or from a quarterback's perspective. Because if you can't cover the tight end man, then you know you're going to see if you very few specific looks around you know Tampa two and quarters and a couple other basic things, but you know what you're going to get predictable looks. Um, if you can't deploy those guys, though, it becomes more of a problem because if you only have like a blocking tight end to the right and you only have a receiving threat to your left, well, then you overload your defense to the strong to, to the to the run side and you man up. You know, you put your one good um, you put your one good pass coverage defender over the other tight end, and you just kind of go, okay, this is this is what we got. Being able to play tight end and move those around really depends on being able to do both both blocking in line and being able to deploy well. You don't have to be great. I would say that if, if you're a Cowboys fan, you're a Baylor fan, so you may you may recall Jason Witten. He's going to be my standard for what you need to be able to do to be an effective tight end, which is Jason Witten made a lot of money his last five years by literally being able to run 12 yards off into the distance. It was one option. They would run. He'd run twelve yards off. He'd look at the defender and say, "Do I need to sit, break in, or break out?" One of those three. And he was exceptional at reading zone coverages. And so he always was able to position his body in such a way that he was just open. He'd catch the ball and he'd fall down because his forty time probably was like you could clock with the sundial. Um, <laughs> if you if 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 a Titan can do that consistently and they can block, yeah, that's what you need. And if, yeah, I mean, if with a matchup where they can't do that, then you'll see them pull. You'll see them pull off us. So right, yeah. I mean, I think about you think about defensive rules for coverage, right? So many defenses are predicated. I mean, and and Dave Aranda's is a perfect example of this. You know, if let's say you've got a passing strength to one side with a couple of wide receivers, and then on the backside you have one wide receiver and one tight end, right? So many defenses are predicated where that backside safety who's on the side of the tight end, they tell him, look, if he's a vertical threat you have to stay to see your side of the field to help the linebacker out in coverage. But if he's not, just, you know, Aranda calls it Fox in the post. Just just go over to the other side and help out over the top deep on the other side because, you know, we don't need to worry about this tight end. He's not going to roast our linebacker. So, you know, what you're saying is, you know, you know they're not just acting as offensive tackle appendages. If you If you have two guys who can present as vertical threats, and that doesn't necessarily mean roasting guys deep, but it does mean, you know, who can win downfield essentially, then those safeties have to honor those guys. They have to, they have to help out their linebackers and it means that they're not going to be able to provide help outside. And so I'm sure whenever we get to Baylor's passing game, when we talk more about, can they get these wide receivers to step up? That's going to be a central question there because we're going to say, look, if you're playing an out of 12 personnel, you know, the safeties are going to have to honor the tight ends. They're going to have to help out these linebackers, which means you're going to get a lot of solo coverage outside. And so can those guys win outside? That that probably is going to be the central question to Baylor's pass game because I think a lot of else is, is known at this point. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Awesome. Okay, well, we spent um, a good amount of time on tight ends here. We're going to move on to running backs. Um, I don't think it's going to take as long because there's just 
I, I th- there's simul- it's, it's a really weird position because I think there's a lot unknown, but there's also... We know what we're going into the season with, even if it, if, if it is unknown. Uh, I know you, you called my take that Squirrel would be Baylor's best ever running back thermonuclear. Uh, not even just a, a 1945 nuclear bomb, but a thermo, a modern new thermonuclear bomb. That's how hot that take was. Um, but really, uh, when you look at the running backs this year, I think it's Squirrel, it's Tay. They're the 1A, the 1B. They have a, you know, a handful of intriguing guys behind them, and I think the way you order them for who would potentially be the third and fourth back is a pretty interesting conversation. But let's start with Squirrel. Let's start with Tay. How do you expect Baylor to use them this year? Do you think it'll be very similar to last year where they they sort of just rotated Abram and Ebner on alternating possessions and then would pretty much always put Abram in towards the goal line? Um, How do you feel like they're going to deploy them? So what we saw last year pretty heavily was, and Ebner actually had a rather hilarious tweet about this, I think, in about Texas. I wish I could remember where it was, but they were very deliberate in splitting carries really kind of on a drive-by-drive basis with those two guys um, for the first four or five games of the year. And then sometime in October, I, I really don't remember when. Um, Brian I think it was the BYU game. They gave Abram like 35 carries or something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they kind of said, okay, no, he's he's the guy. Like, he's the workhorse. He's getting the carries. And they, they loaded up Abram. And they did it for a couple of reasons, one of which they didn't want to load Abram up too much. Um, you know, he still had surgery last year. Like he, he it's, it's a t- running back, just a brutal position to play. Um, but I would expect him to split carries again this year. And it's a good way to generate competition, which is you can, you can go into the running back room and say, look guys, we're going to split carries and whoever's better here, like the whole team's going to know it. So we're not naming a starter. One of you two is going to name yourselves the starter based off how well you can play. And we did that last year with Ebner and Abram. Both those guys went to the league. We're going to do it again with y'all. And you know, whoever plays better is who we're going to see who's going to get more carries. So I would I would assume you're going to see something pretty similar to that. Um, you know, sometime probably mid-October to end of October, they'll go, they'll, assuming no in, major injury issues, um, they'll probably pick someone and say, this is our two-thirds of the time guy, this is a one-third of the time guy, and they'll pick a goal-line guy. Um, that, but that is really what I think they will do. I, I think they will really spread that out um, as much as possible, A, because particularly when you're playing like Albany. I mean, there's no reason for those guys to take hits as much yeah. as possible. It does, it's, it's pointless. Um, but I think the main alternative to that, Jeff, it's worth considering. It's like, okay, so if you're not, both these guys are going to get carries. So I think there's really two ways to do it. Do you alternate them by series or do you create kind of a standard down back situation and then versus like a third down back situation, which Baylor didn't really do last year. They They usually didn't bring in a third down guy. I mean, they did it, Seldom, but you know that's kind of the other alternative, and I think Tay might profile really well as a third down back. So, do you think that's in the cards? So my hot take here is I think we're going to see more twenty-one personnel in that instance, and um, we're going to run some pony. Um, that's an old SMU joke, but uh, twenty-one. Like I think that if Tay and Squirrel on the field at the same time is potentially like really interesting in a lot of fun way. Um, you can do a lot of really like just fun stuff with them because I do think that Squirrel is good enough. I think Squirrel has the ability. We haven't really seen it. He just has all the traits for it to be able to play a little slot. And 
if you have if you can move him around basically you can go you can put two guys in the backfield you can move him onto the slot you can move guys around and dictate what the defensive formation is you're going to see being able to dictate like that out of with those two is going to be is is i think going to be interesting i think you'll see that you won't see it against albany again they're going to run like four plays against albany but could you is that one of the things we're going to see for byu maybe i i, yeah. I don't know um, I do. I will say. I'll, I'll go back to this. I think they'll do it on a drive by drive, and the reason for that is it's a lot easier when you go into the room with with these guys. When when Juice goes into these room goes into the room and they're doing the overview on Sunday and they're looking at tape, um, he doesn't have to answer questions like why didn't I get a touch at the goal line? But well, wasn't your it wasn't your drive? Like mm. wasn't your drive? Like that's and it just it becomes really easy to all those types of questions that you have to answer as a position coach around who's getting the most reps and like feeling with frustration like all that goes out the window if you just go it's possession yeah. by possession while someone's in and we're just gonna call the game because we're trying to see who's better at the end of the season and if you go in with that approach I think that that it just simplifies a lot of things from a position coach perspective and just kind of like last year Ebner is a great player but. Again, like Reggie Bush, he's kind of more of a play, not a player. And yeah. it was very obvious by November that Abram was the better running back for that skill set on that team. And it wasn't that they named Abram the starter. It's that Abram named himself the starter. Like, that's how it works. Um, he, he, and I just, that, I think they will probably do that because it's a lot easier to do competition that way when you're running those reps of, we're going to toss it out there. They're going to do something similar with wide receiver as well. Like, they're oh, yeah. all those guys and say, if you, you can start, but you have to name yourself a start, we're not going to do it. And you yeah. put with the own players and you give them the accountability to, if you want to start, it's there. You just got to go and do it. So I, I love that phrase. You have to name yourself a starter. That's a, that's a good one. Um, it's always nice when the coach speak, like actually means something. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think about, you know, when you're talking about, the pony personnel and and everything Baylor can do because they have good tight ends this year and multiple good running backs who, you know, Tay is an awesome option to flex out in the past game as well. Squirrel should be able to flex out and should run, you know, seam routes downfield, et cetera. Um, I remember when Matt Rule first got hired and he was on the national, he was on like the semi um, semifinals coaches film room for ESPN. And he was, yeah, he was going over the Oklahoma game. Um, I don't remember who Oklahoma, I, I feel like they always played Clemson, so that's probably who it was, but I'm not sure. Um, but I remember one of the things he was hammering on, he was just like, it is impossible to call defense against this offense, not necessarily because all their players are so great, which, I mean, they were, but a lot of offenses have a bunch of great players. He was just like, none of these guys ever come off the field because they can all do, you know, they never have to sub. Um, they were running offenses to where in one on one play they could be five wide and on the next one they could have you know three or four guys inside the box and all of them could block all of them could catch um i think the options for that this year for baylor for how many different permutations they can get of you know credibly being able to split their running backs out wide being able to split ben sims out wide drake dabney, drake dabney out wide i mean there are there are a lot of formations where with the same five guys on the field, you can see that same aspect where you could play out of empty or you could play out of big sets and they should be able to do both things. And that gets back into what we were talking about with the tight ends for having, having players who can, who can effectively um, operate within multiple facets of the game. They're not, they're not plays, they're total players. Uh, it, it just, it makes, it really handcuffs the defensive coordinator because it ha- you have to simplify your calls. 
yeah, it does significantly. The, the, the team that does this in the NFL really well is, and this is not surprising anybody, but it's historically been the Patriots. Um, they, if you go, I can't remember what Super Bowl it is anymore because there's like 500 million of them, but uh, the Super Bowl where they played the Rams, I believe it was. And they basically, I mean, they shut down that Sean McVay offense, but they couldn't get anything going in the game either. And eventually what they hit on at the end of the third quarter was they went like with in 22 personnel, but then they spread everybody out. So they went wide out of uh, 22, two tight ends and two, two um, running backs. And as a result of that, they were able to generate mismatches with those deployed players in a way that they weren't able to normally because if they brought if you brought on your coverage guys in that situation, then the Patriots simply just sucked everything down, went to a heavy formation and ran the ball for six yards. And they were able to really kind of dictate um really the last like three or four drives once they hit on that because they were able to just execute down the field pretty consistently. Now that requires a level of consistent execution that can be difficult for the college game, but that type of flexibility for a driver to a game is very powerful. Just, yeah. just it's it's nice. It's kind of like having a really great. Um, I'll use the baseball analogy. It's like having a great two seamer. Like you have your you have your primary forcing fastball. It's what the primary pitch is, but you also have. Being able to be flexible like that, if you can really rely on that instead of having to go to different packages to generate your offense, that's that's really, really nice. Yeah, and I think that goes into how offensive coordinators actually game plan and think about the game because there are so many plays that coordinators use that they know, like, okay, once the defense sees this once or twice, it's not going to be as effective anymore, right? And so something that Jeff Crimes can do this year is say, okay, you know, whenever we get a drive roll and we ever, whenever we get a couple first downs in a row, that's when I'll break out the, oh, wow, we're, we're going to split all these tight ends out wide and then run a few interesting combinations and really finish this drive off. And then, you know, the defense will be able to go to the sideline and adjust. But I think, you know, formationally, when you can show new things and it's very easy to create new wrinkles whenever you have versatile players. Um, and so I think that'll be something that that'll be interesting to watch this year, because I think you're going to see a lot of like, you know, get the the final the final uh, hammer of the nail to finish off drives by using these guys in interesting ways. Um, okay, so another question about running backs. What you know, we kind of dispelled the myth last time about offensive line in wide zone and how just because you, you know offensive uh, or excuse me, wide zone doesn't make bad offensive linemen good, right? It just it just requires a different skill set. Something we taught, we heard about all the time, even I know, and I don't know the NFL that well, you know, is the whole thing about Terrell Davis was the Broncos running back name, right? Yes. And, and he kind of hit, famously would run for thousands of yards every season. And everyone said, oh, oh, he's not a great athlete. It's just, you know, the wide zone offense, but he, you know, he's good. So what is it that makes a wide zone running back? And is it, you know, how true is kind of the myth of like, you can, you can use guys who aren't as athletic at that position as you could in other offenses. So I I, I don't know if you noticed there, I just said, how true is the myth? I feel like I'm kind of loading the question there. Um, So I think a better way to think about it is the most important, well, not better way, I would say athleticism there's always a base level trait of athleticism, but in the wide zone, the most important thing that you can do is be decisive on your, on your cut. Um, indecisive on your cut 
gives away, and this is, this really is true. They have, I know coaches have actually done math on this. It's anywhere from like 200 to like 800 milliseconds, which doesn't sound like very long, but it really matters. <laughs> and it doesn't sound like it would, but it really does. If you can be really, truly decisive on your cut and plant your foot and get upfield, the goal on a wide zone is always like you're blocking a play for hopefully four yards. That's what you want. You were hoping for four yards, and then if the defense makes a mistake, you get more. What you want is you want four yards because if you can run that three times in a row, you got a first down. And it that sounds really dumb because you're going to say, well, why doesn't everyone run it all the time? Well, if you ran all the time, you would, you know, you'd have to deal with like 13 guys in the box, which obviously you don't want to do that. But it, that first four yards is really what matters. And so Alfred Morris is a guy who played for the Washington Redskins for a long time. I think he had a, he had a bit of a tour with the Cowboys, too. He bounced around. Wasn't super quick. Um, probably ran like a 4.6 to 4.7, honestly, uh, by the end of his career. But he still put up a ton of yards in any outside zone scheme because he was extremely decisive and he knew how to get upfield. And that seems... That seems like an easy trait, but if you're a running back, it's not. And God bless Ebner, but he wasn't super decisive with the ball in his hands. And we saw that a lot last year where he would, there would be an alley for four yards and Abram would just take it and get the four and Ebner wouldn't because he didn't, he wanted something else or he wasn't sure, he wasn't comfortable and he just couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, being decisive on that cut is, is the whole ball game. I mean, it's if you can't be decisive, it doesn't matter how fast you are. Like in the case of Ebner, Ebner wasn't terrible at it, but he wasn't great at it either. Um, Abram was significantly better than him in that scheme because he was more decisive, not because he was tougher or anything, which is, I think, what some fans always thought is. He yeah, was Ebner a was a pretty tough runner. Ebner was a tough runner. He just wasn't, he just was decisive enough in the hole. That's why he wasn't there as much. Um, the second thing, though, really is is that being able to finish through contact. Um, that would be my number two. Finishing through, the, there's a guy that I always think of. Um, oh, uh, I can't remember his name. All of a sudden, he got cut by Matt Rule. Um, everyone thought he was extremely tough physical runner for Bryles. He got cut in 2017. Oh, Terrence Williams. Terrence Williams, thank you. Um, Terrence, Terrence Williams is a really good example of this because Terrence Williams – was like a bicycle, which was if he was standing still, you'd like knock him over with a feather. But once he got his forward momentum going, he was almost impossible to bring down. Like he was just the truck stick. I mean, he really was. And I've, ne- I've never seen a player like that who could not literally could fall over at the drop of a hat. Once he started moving, you couldn't get on the ground. Um, finishing through contact like that is very important on that outside zone because people are going to get their hands on you. Like, how you power through that initial wave of contact. Like people are going to be striking you at off angles. That's a very common thing in this scheme. Like a linebacker is not going to square you up in the hole very often in this scheme because they're going to be shedding the block or chasing down from the side. There's not a lot of like old school meeting a man in the hole, trying to stand up and get, pick him up off ground and get it like, get him down. You're not doing that in this scheme. You're running the spot, trying to generate contact like from an angle. Yeah, so, Grimes and Grimes and Mateos call it uh, the the scheme forces a lot of profile tackles, and yeah. what that means is you know the profile obviously of your face is looking at it from the side, and essentially what they're saying is exactly what you're saying. There's not a lot of squared up in the hole. It's a lot of guys coming at you from from sideways angles, which is not a very it's not a great way to have to try and bring down somebody who's running with a full head of steam. 
percent. And that so that really matters because you're going to turn a lot of two yard gains into five yard gains if you can finish through contact. Um, the Y zone for them is always, I think, if it's run well for them, the Y zone is really the base pitch that's four to six yards. Like if they don't, if you know, if they get five yards every play and they never get eight, but they also never got two. They're really unbeatable. Now that's like a habit, okay? But like that's the goal. The, the, the goal of the wide zone is not to get a twelve-yard run. The goal of the wide zone is to pick up four to five, and that's what's blocked for. And so everything you can do to get to that four that four or five-yard mark is important. After that, like what what San Francisco does is San Francisco really prioritizes finding guys that um, have an exceptional amount of burst once they make that cut. Um, they don't always have the best guys. The trade-off that they made is they always usually get the best guys that can finish through contact. They can, but they don't always do that. But they really, you know, they've really decided to go for speed because if you can break through that initial line and get through that initial hole, that's where your big gains come. So athleticism generates a lot of explosiveness in the wide zone game, but it's more, you know, that really does need to be secondary to can I get these a second aid? Can I go get four yards? Like that, I mean, that really matters over the course of the season. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, when fans think about guys who aren't decisive and, and you're, you're thinking as a fan, like I would be decisive if I was running with the ball, like why not just plant your foot and get up and go upfield? Um, I think it's worth, you know, reiterating that it's not just like the running backs are just like kind of taking the ball and looking at the offensive line and just like kind of randomly deciding where they're going. Right. Um, I wrote a whole article about this for Sigma three, six, five, but essentially there's a whole, you know, they're reading, they're reading the defensive line. It's all like, it's very much like they have a primary read, they have a secondary read. And based on what those two guys do, that's where they go with the ball. So the guys who can operationalize that mentally and do it very quickly those are the special people like you need the athleticism to explode after that initial cut um but it's also you you need that quick processing speed because if you're kind of staring at the defensive line and get paralyzed that's where guys get into trouble so do you see that with with tay and squirrel do do you think either of them is is better clearly better than the other right now as far as their ability to kind of execute the, the the most basic play in the in the playbook which is executing wide zone you know, we just haven't seen we haven't seen them run it consistently. I think that's that's kind of a big key. You see them run it on individual plays, but you know, you need multiple drives of them running a lot of wide zone to really get a good feel for it. Uh, I would, based off what I've seen right now, I think that Squirrel has a slight edge. The way that he moves in the hole gives me a little bit better really makes me think that he has an, an ability to have that little bit better vision. But it, it's it I just I haven't seen enough of them in terms of in game reps to be able to really know that. I, I, yeah. my final work assumption is that Squirrel has a little bit better vision and actually I think a little bit better running through contact because he's actually really good at moving his body in the hole so that he doesn't take squared up hits, which is something that Tate struggles right. with a bit. He's a little bit too right when he runs. Um, but Tay, I think, has got a... Um, I think Tay is more decisive on the initial vision. I don't think he's got that initial burst off the first step. But I think he's better at being decisive, but he does have that little bit extra. So I, that's my initial, but 
that could be totally wrong. <laughs> I think your I think your point about multiple drives is important because wide zone is the type of play where great linebackers really come into play on defense because they're able to kind of play games with the running back in um, you know, forcing them to hit the wrong gap after their cutback. And you want to be able to see a running back kind of change up their game plan, almost like a pitcher who's already seen a batter a couple times in the game. Like, how do how am I going to get this guy out for a third time? And I think you see that with running backs. Like, okay, I know I'm going to beat this linebacker in the hole. Like, what is something I can do with my angle? What's something I can do with my vision uh, to really kind of mess with his game? That, that'll be interesting to see if they can kind of do that and sustain that throughout a game. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm really excited about this run game this year. Um, you know, we can keep going on and on and on, but we gotta, we got to get out of here. I think the final thing I'll say is, you know, I don't think it's very controversial, but if, these, if neither of these guys really deals with significant injuries throughout the year, I feel very good about the running game, just purely from the running back aspect. Uh, we weren't able to talk about any of the guys behind them. I think that will be key because getting through a season with only two guys really toting the rock like that is basically impossible. Um, you know, Abram played through a knee injury last year. He, I think he had his knee scoped or something like during the bye week and was still able to come back. I don't think that's something you're going to be able to do with squirrel and who knows whether Tay can do it. So I think, you know, I think if Baylor has a truly dominant run game this year, we're going to look back and say, okay, Josh Fleeks took a big step up. Jordan Jenkins was able to provide a nice relief. You know, Richard Reese was good as a true freshman. I think, you know, one of those three things probably is going to need to happen for them to be as good as they're going to need to be because, you you need these guys to provide big carries and big moments because you can't rely on those starters being healthy all year. But Jeff, this was really fun. We got to talk um, tight ends, running backs, still a little bit of offensive line. I think, you know, we're going to do another episode eventually for the offense as far as the passing game goes, where we'll dive into shape and we'll dive into the wide receivers some more. And another aspect of the tight ends we need to talk about some more is how you know, how how does having Blake Shapin kind of change the way that Baylor's able to use Ben Sims and Drake Dabney in the passing game? But we'll save that for another day. Thank you all for listening. Um, Jeff, it's always great talking to you. Your life is so crazy hectic right now, so much more than mine. So it means a lot more than uh, a lot to you. It means a lot to me that you're spending an hour out of your day doing this. So appreciate it. And I'm no. sure all the listeners are very thankful. Absolutely. All right, rock on. Y'all be good. Bye.